people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Night Porter, a strong man, a weak man, a clever man. If I were rich, I'd hire you to do everything for me. Would you? No. You were always insane, and you still are. Sane, insane then. <laughs> Who's the judge? A desperate man. So they can't take you away. The night porter. His world. His friends. Sicheil! Sicheil! His enemies. His secret. I have a reason for working at night. It's the light. I have a sense of shame in the light. The night porter. Got to 42. She's waiting for you. The past. The present. <laughs> the passion. The fear. The police came. They're looking for Frau Atherton. Tell me what you talked about. What you said to each other! Dirk Bogard. Charlotte Rampling. The Night Porter. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Emma Westwood. Hello, Mike. Nice to join you again. It's been a while, but I finally made it back. Also back in the booth is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. On this episode, we are looking at Liliana Cavani's The Night Porter, released in 1974. The film is set in 1957 Vienna, where Max Oldorfer is the titular night porter. When a conductor and his wife, Lucia, check in, Max is thrown into a tizzy. He's been living a quiet life and trying to stay under the radar as he's a war criminal who's just been confronted with one of his victims, who was also his sex slave. How's that for a bad day at work? We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you haven't seen The Night Porter, please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, Kat, when was the first time you saw this film, and what did you think? Believe it or not, this played on the BBC in the 90s, although I don't know whether it was cut or not. The 90s was a bit of a freewheeling era for British TV. I thought it was Channel 4, but I looked it up, it was actually BBC 2. I thought this was definitely a Channel 4 film. You know, they were showing all sorts of wild shit in those days. We even had, like, Flash for Frankenstein in 3D at one point, and... Oh, obviously, I really liked it. I don't know if I totally understood it then, because I was a lot younger. It was at midnight, so I was probably in my mid-twenties. But yeah, I was kind of semi-fixated on it, and then didn't see it again for years until, like, DVD. I just think it's a wonderful film, a really misunderstood film. So here today to probably sully my name even further by defending it. I don't know if you can sully it any further, Cat. <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> give it a shot, Cat. Give it a shot. I'll give it a good go. 
And Emma, how about yourself? Yeah, well, my first viewing wasn't that long ago, really. A few years ago, it was probably with the Criterion re-release. So it was kind of one of those blind spots, you know, that sits in your your two-watch basket. I've got to get around to this. I've got to get around to this. And always knew of it, always knew the that iconic imagery of Charlotte as Lucia standing there with the braces and the, the SS hat on and holding her hands over her breasts. So there's, you know, quite a few images in this film or that kind of iconography of the poster and the graphic the graphic art that sticks with you, I think. I'm pretty glad that I waited. I think it was fortuitous in some ways because um, I don't think I would have appreciated it. It's interesting you saying it did stay with you, Kat, because I don't know whether it would have been a bit for me as even though I had seen quite a bit of diverse cinema at the time, I might have kind of got stuck on the ick factor of it, if you know what I mean. Like I got the whole idea of, I remember seeing Harold and Maud when I was younger and thinking, oh, that's just icky, you know, and, and that's a film now that I think is just, you know, a masterpiece. I could see that there was just certain nuances that kind of lost on a, Well, I would consider myself, I guess, immature in a certain sense at that time. Not trying to be controversial here, but I think that there is a lot of a lot of people's reaction to this to this film can come from immaturity as well, or just an inability to want to watch it for what it is and just take from what they glean of possibly that kind of graphic art that I talked about and so forth, they place a certain barrier up and go, no, that's just not going to be for me. And hopefully with us talking about it today, we'll be able to show or explain that it's a different film to what people may expect it to be. I'm trying to remember the first time I saw this, and I don't think it was that long ago. I think maybe a decade or more. I was working on a book project with my friend Melanie Dante, which is called Sin Sado Noir, Sin with a C for whatever, so maybe Chin. And there's a big article in that about the Night Porter, and I was helping her proof stuff, so I really needed to see the movie, so I knew what the hell they were talking about as I was reading this article. Yeah, I can definitely see where it would push a lot of hot buttons because of the themes to this and because of the setting. But man, just it really explores a lot of great topics, especially when it comes to power dynamics and relationships. And and especially, you know, me being a big Laura Mulvey fan, this whole idea of the gaze and who has control. One of the first times we see Dick Bogard and when we see him and Charlotte Rampling together for one of the very first times, because we should talk about the structure of this film, he's holding a camera and using that camera almost like a weapon and just holding her under his gaze. He's kind of like Mark from Peeping Tom, other than like the knife that is at the end of it. I mean, he's pretty much just focusing on her to the point where even in a later shot, people are parting around her and he just has that camera right on her, that spotlight and the whole idea of like spotlights and who's in the light, that's going to come up so much with this as well. I mean, this movie ends towards the end. We are plunged into darkness when the electricity is cut off in his apartment at one point. So this whole idea of light and dark and dawn, and when we start off with this film, it is so overcast, and this whole movie has this kind of, I don't want to say dour, but just definitely very drained of color look. It's gorgeous. I love the way that this movie looks. 
I wanted to go back to what Emma said about the ick factor, just to note that I'd probably seen Gestapo's last orgy before that, so I was kind of <laughs> <not> difficult. <laughs> yeah, we've never really talked about Nazi exploitation on this podcast. I find it kind of boring, and I saw a few of those titles because they were on the video nasty list, obviously, and they were like grails. So I did this weird backward thing where my introduction to European film was through things like Cannibal Ferox or Nazi exploitation or, you know, the stuff on the nasty list just because that was the stuff you needed to get if you were like a horror fan in the 80s because it was banned. And honestly, I find Nazi exploitation not even shocking, just kind of boring, just kind of same old outside of them. Um, the only exception to that is the Ilsa films because Diane Thorne is just incredible in those. She's more like a pantomime villain and they're just so much fun. I hate Lee Frost Love Camp, which I just think is one of the most mean-spirited films ever, but that was like the first. But I just find it a bit boring, a bit meh. So, you know, obviously the Night Porter gets pushed into that, just like Pasolini Salo gets pushed into that, but they're not really that at all. I wouldn't call this anything remotely near Nazi exploitation, mainly because Max's character is hu- like he's humanized. He's not this, you know, you don't have the pantomime villain Nazis. You, I mean, obviously there's a lot of sadism in it, but it comes from a completely different place. It's not there. I think it's deliberately there to make you go, ick. But I don't know. I kind of like sitting with that feeling because it challenges you. It's like it really challenges you. Whether like Nazi exploitation is more like, to me, it feels like a little kid shitting in their hand or what can we do next to be offensive. And it's just, it's boring. It's just like, ugh, I just can't, you know. So that's all the Nazi exploitation fans pissed off for this week, Mike. First of all, Liliana Cavani, it's obviously a, the exploration of fascism through that time is something that's very personal to her in terms of the time when she was brought up. She said that it was not spoken about at school I mean, I can understand something like that being an Australian, being uh, brought up and not being told about the Aboriginal history and experience in Australia. We had nothing of that at school, right? So it was like a whole guilt thing that's just been, you know, wiped out of curriculum. And she talks about that, you know, the, the fascist era as an Italian and obviously Italians went through that with the Mussolini and the and the allegiance with the Third Reich and so forth. That was something, therefore, that she really wanted to explore creatively and all basically all her works sort of hinge on it in some way, you know, and she's really rigorously approached intellectually this subject matter. So in the body of her work as well, it's not... Nazi exploitation is not something just to do for the sake of it for this film you know when you contextualize it in that manner you can see she's really academic Cavani you know she's not someone who suffers fools either I mean I'd be terrified to interview her she's pretty scary she's and this as well sort of thing it's kind of a double-edged sword for this film because I think it gives when you're talking about a sadomasochistic relationship I mean she's kind of couched it in the most extreme terms I mean it really gives a lot of gravitas to that relationship and a lot of context 
But also that's the reason why people, I mean, it's just, you know, the the collective experience, the recent historical experience, even now, you still have Holocaust survivors around who can recall experiences in the camps. So straight away, you have this knee-jerk response. Like I've just come back from Bali and there's swastikas everywhere in Bali and it makes you kind of have this reaction to it. But they're the original Hindu swastikas. That's where the Nazis took it from. I mean, they just love the symbolism. They love the look of it. So I really do actually like it that these Hindus have stuck with their symbol. Like it's like, screw you, you bastards. It's meaningful to them in another way. I think, you know, be interesting for someone to use use the swastika in that manner, you know, even in the context of a film that has, you know, a Hindu setting in some way, I don't think you, you ever see it because people are too scared of what, what it says now to people. So, unfortunately, this gives a lot of depth to a film, but a whole lot of people just put up their hand and even when they watch it, they're not allowing themselves to see beyond this idea of Nazism. And also the presumption, because it's not really overtly said in the film, but the presumption that she's Jewish. And, and, and I think Cavani's made a really good choice. Maybe it had to be more explicit for the people who just missed it in the context of the more subtly in the narrative. But it isn't about the Jewish experience. It's not about the Holocaust. You bring that straight into it and all of a sudden it's something else. And then you're exploring a whole other subject. You're laboring the purity of this film with a whole layer of shit, basically. (laughs) So I think it's really clever that she didn't go for that. I mean, once you realise that, and I know there's a lot of people that today just assume it's about she's Jewish in it. Isn't it her parents were socialists, though? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Her parents were socialists. She's not, it's not said that she's Jewish at all. And it is interesting. There's the scene where they're saying what their religions are, and there's only one person that says that they're Jewish. Everybody else is Catholic, Lutheran, you know. And, yeah, I don't know what her faith is, but, yeah, she's the daughter of a socialist. Yeah, it's not explicit. It's just to do with her parents, isn't it? But she was put in the... Camp. The the thing that always surprises me is Pauline Kale's response to this because there was a real backlash. And Charlotte Ramplin said in a recent interview, she had people sort of coming up to her saying, "How dare you! Like, how dare you do this thing?" I love the Ramplin. She was she was like our or is like our Isabel Hooper. She's never taken the easy route ever. Like <laughs> she is incredible, but. This whole backlash, there was the Sontag essay about the eroticization of the Holocaust and this whole sort of furore around the early 70s, you know, where, why are there all these Nazi exploitation films and the Pasolini film and Visconti and, you know, what's going on? And, you know, this is like an eroticization of something terrible, this terrible trauma. And then you had Kayle who really backlashed against this and quite a few other high-profile critics who called it pornography. And I am especially surprised at Kale because she championed Last Tango in Paris so much. They're basically coming from the same place. Outside of the entire Holocaust thing, which, you know, seems almost inseparable, this is like just a really destructive, toxic romance film, which were just so dominant in the 70s, especially in European film. And she went out on a limb to champion Last Tango and to stand up for it and say, 
thank God, finally we have adult romances. But her response to the night portal was the opposite. It's like, this is disgusting. And so many people linking it to porn when there's actually, beyond the topless, which for the 70s was pretty bloody tame, to be honest, you don't see any of the sex. It is tame in that regard. You know, there's not like huge, massive, sordid, like it's not even on a par with Last Tango in that respect, where you've got like forced buggery and, you know, really, really intense sex scenes. So I'm surprised that Kale were not getting this one. I'm just surprised at some of the reactions that you think you would have expected them to get it. But I guess in the 70s, it was a subject they still didn't have the distance from the sun, not that we can ever totally distance from it, but it was still quite new, quite fresh. And I think a lot of those reactions, like Emma said, were like just purely visceral, like, Ugh, how can you? Like, this is the unspeakable. This is the undoable. But that wasn't the director's intention. I think she's working some of her own stuff out, definitely. She'd interviewed a lot of Holocaust survivors for her. She started off as a TV director and was doing like a TV documentary about Holocaust survivors. And she said that, it just stuck with her how some of them would just still live in it. Like they could never escape. And so that is like the central thesis of the film really is how Max and Lucia, they're, they're just destined to forever live that. You know, they can't escape it. It's something that started and they can never be outside of that, which is why they fall so easily back into their roles because they never stop living them. And so it has this like really profound sort of sadness at its core. Because even Max, even though he did horrible things, you kind of like Max. And I think people took that as a betrayal. I think they felt betrayed by that. Like, how could you make me like this horrible monster? Just calling it the night porter as well. I mean, that is Max's role in the film. And that. so it's kind of straight away it posits the audience like it's about Max and Max is behind the camera. Max is holding the spotlight on Lucia, on Bert, who's the other, the Nazi dancer in this. I love Bert. Bert is so, oh my God, I love Bert. (laughs) And those sequences of him dancing, I mean, look at that body and that form and it's just mind-blowing he's an amazing dancer Mario Amodio he is humanized like we're put audience don't like being put in the role of someone who's look it happens a lot but those films are often controversial where people are made to sit with that that character and essentially look through their eyes and it's not a comfortable position to be. So it's kind of for some people it can be how dare you. you know? it's just yeah, amazing. I feel it's become more of that. I feel like a common modern criticism now is this character was unlikable. Like there was a big backlash to Sean Baker's Red Rocket, which I love. But they were like, oh, well, the protagonist is horrible. He, like, grooms this girl. He's, like, you know, tries to get her into porn. I don't like this. And I don't think that's a valid criticism. This character was unlikable. Why do you need the character to be unlikable? Whereas the 70s, it was all about unlikability. You know, Travis Bickle is one of the icons of that generation. Not a likable man. He is hideous. But we love Travis. We still love Travis. And there's a reason why. But I feel like nowadays there's even less tolerance for that. And so 
I don't know if the night porters hit any sort of modern radar now. It seems to just float beneath the surface. You know, it's yet to be rediscovered. But I feel like that would be one of them moments where you see a lot of more contemporary criticism by, I did not like this character, as if that's somehow valid. Max is a Nazi, though. When you're made to like a Nazi... He's a Nazi, but he's also a man. It's like, you know, he he is like... I don't know. Taking it is cool. The film really is just Romeo and Juliet replayed just in stream. It's the star-crossed lovers. It's, you know, this forbidden love, two separate sides are kept away from each other. And it's destructive. You know they're going to die. And so it goes back to that very fatalistic romance, that more classic romance. Max is a twofer, though, Kat, because he's, you know, he's a Nazi and you could argue he's a pedophile as well. Yeah. He is. He's got the pedo going. (laughs) He is all the things, but he's also very human and very vulnerable and really complex because I don't think anyone else but Bogart could have played this role. I mean, I love him. And I grew up with him in the Doctor films. You know, he's a matinee idol in Britain. He was like this little sweetheart. Outside of that, I think like Rampin, he was driven to these more transgressive roles, starting with Victim in the early 60s, where he plays like a homosexual being blackmailed himself, a homosexual who couldn't be out. You know, homosexuality was still illegal until 68. I don't think he cared. Did he ever officially come out? I don't know. Maybe in the 80s. I don't think he did. Did he ever officially come out? I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure about that, but yeah. I think he was kind of um, assumed, he's, you know, he had a living partner. Yeah, and I think it was it was broad knowledge, but he, I don't know, he didn't Never have... Never spoken of. No, he came from a totally different generation, and so he felt compelled. He did The Servant, which is one of my most favourite films of all time. And I think there's some, some sort of parallels between this and The Servant as well, this whole power dynamic play, that sex is more about power than titillation. And he just did so many transgressive things. The damned ramping was the same, you know, starts off like a Julie Christie type character. And very quickly she goes to we'll start working with Visconti. Both of them are amazing, but Bogart was just such an exceptional actor. He could play really nasty, horrible people. His character in The Servant is revolting, but they're just so compelling. Like they are just so compelling. The way you talked about The Servant, it is a very similar role, yet I I think it shows how great Bogart is in that he could play these, you know, the night porter is servile position in in this hotel, but he holds himself very differently in the night porter. There's something, I think Gaetana Moroni in her book mentions that he's puppet-like in the night porter and there's something about the way his shoulders are squared and the way he moves his hand his arms off his seems very different to the way he holds himself in the servant he's arrogant in the servant he's like arrogant he's really passive aggressive he you know makes out he's nice and servile but behind the scenes he's and if you haven't seen the servant this isn't a it's not a spoiler at all but he is a, a totally different character but one that also sort of plays with power and has this like weird hidden aggression that is he's not where he should be and he's arrogant and the night porter he's like covered in he's smothered in shame it's like he scuttles around doesn't want to be seen i think he even says that doesn't he doesn't want to be seen doesn't want people to look at him 
Whereas, you know, you've got old Philip Leroy, another one I fucking love, Philip Leroy. And he's just like, I want to go back to the old power. You know, he's like totally, totally unrepentant. They got their like weird little group going with those trials that they play out, which is. (laughs) Yeah, because I mean, this whole movie could be about the trials. Just you could take the Charlotte Rampling stuff and just push it aside for a long time and just have it be these weird mock trials where they're trying to redeem themselves, but at the same time, they're so fastidious about filing things away, which is very much a euphemism for killing people. They're just like, oh, we're going to have to file this person away. We're trying to redeem ourselves, but basically we're just trying to cut all the loose ends so that we can now live our lives and be brazen about who we are. And they don't like that Max is this quiet church mouse type of person they're just like no no you you have to come out into the light with us and you know look at us we're you know now men of professions and but yeah max is just like Mm-mm, no like when he calls all their stuff a farce i mean that to me is where i'm just like yeah i can get behind you max i can really totally understand because these guys are just kidding themselves yeah philip leroy with his huge monocle that monocle takes up half of his face. It's wild. Talk about looking and just the power of the gaze. You know, he's got this big monocle. He's the investigator trying to find any loose ends. He's basically playing the devil's advocate in this trial situation. And man, Max straight up murders somebody right in the middle of this movie. When they find out that there's Mario, the former cook, well, I guess he still is a cook. He's running in this restaurant. And it's just like, hey, yeah, Mario, let's go out fishing. And then we get this great audio flashback of him murdering Mario, like uh, straight up Fredoing him out in the middle of the, the river. But it was also Max's reaction to that was so interesting because he seems sort of like elated. And then he seems to be in some sort of despair or some sort of pain. And that's what you see him play out when in the personal sort of the sex scenes, the so-called pornography. That was more them just sort of grappling, you know. Where is the sex in this? Where is the actual porn? And you think, considering this came out at a time when Deep Throat was showing on the big street, like, people should have known better. I mean, you get the thrusting buttocks at one point. And yeah. But that was hers. See, that was the thing, wasn't it? Cavani said that they uh, got the, the sensors knife at it because she was on top, because a woman was on top of the man. And she, she couldn't believe that. I love, though, you hear Cavani talk about it. She was sort of aghast that, you know, it got an X rating and was said that it couldn't be for an underage audience. And I felt like going, Liana, calm down. It isn't for an underage audience, regardless. But don't take the kids to see this one. I was even talking about the thrusting buttocks in the camp when all of the women are around. And I'm not even sure who that is. Like, he had such a good ass going on. I thought it was Bert, the dancer. Bert has got the best ass in the whole film, I'm going to have to say. A tight body, I tell you what. But but that scene, uh, you know, that, yeah, that thrusting ass. Sorry, I forgot about that, Mike. I think that in itself, you know, people didn't like the idea of people had sex in the camps well guess what people had freaking sex in the camps because there wasn't much else joy to have if you got to be if you could get your jollies if you could have an orgasm or something fabulous you know it actually happened despite the fact that no one really talks about it i mean children were born in the camps children were born just after the camps 
they don't talk about collaboration either. And I know we've covered it on some of our Czech episodes, but a lot of the post-war films, collaboration was like the big no-no. It had to be about the partisans or the resistance or winning the war and the Nazis were bad. And nobody liked to talk about collaboration, whereas in like Czech cinema, quite often we covered it with Yuri Hertz and the cremate. We've done quite a few Czech sort of collaboration films, but it's always shocking when people bring out that idea of collaboration into the, you know, nobody wants to talk about it. And those women, the women that quote unquote collaborated, especially the ones in France were sort of shaved and paraded around and, you know, post-war is disgusting because they had collaborated. I was recently reading uh, Jean-Louis Trontignon's autobiography or a weird translation that I did of it on Google Translate. And his mother was, his mother and father were arrested because they were involved with the French resistance. And his mother appears like after a week inexplicably. And it turns out, Jean-Louis finds out he's a kid at the time, you know, when the village come for his mother and shave her and parade her around that she'd actually had like a relationship with this German officer and even called him the love of her life. So she, she not only betrayed his father, who ended up in a prisoner of war camp the rest of the war. But she had used that relationship to keep herself safe. This is one of the few films that really talks about it from a woman's perspective, because Lucia has a certain amount of power. Like Emma said, there's the one sex scene that you see, it's her that mounts Max. And she certainly has a lot of power in the, the Marlena Dietrich scene when she sings. She has the whole audience captive. And learns that she can use her sexuality as power. But that's something, that's like a no-no. We don't, we don't talk about that. We don't want to talk about that. I think one of the few films that does is Roger Vadim's Vice and Virtue, which was like a re- weird retelling of Dessard's Justine and Juliet, but set again in the camps where you've got, I'm trying to think who it is. I want to say Jean Moreau, but I don't think it's Jean Moreau, but is like the good sister who's played by Catherine Deneuve refuses to go into the brothels. And then the bad sister is completely sort of, she's a French woman, but she's gone into the brothels basically to keep herself safe. Sort of shows that Lucia sort of responds to this as a way of getting some sort of power. But I think it's doubly punished because it's like women aren't supposed to use their sexuality anyway. They're not supposed to get into sex work. They're not supposed to use it to be manipulative you know, they're not even supposed to acknowledge it's a power at all. But then the double bind is, you know, to do it in a with Nazis, that's like even worse. You should technically just want to die rather than give that up. And I think the film shows survival is a very different story. Like, it's on a par with the Czech films that do the same thing, show that in Czech, Czechoslovakia, which was under Nazi occupation, People collaborated to survive, and some of them even just did it as a way of, like, the cremator to get a leg up. They just use it as a social social advancement, you know, because that's people. Put people in a difficult position, what are they going to do? A lot of them will just do what they need to do to survive. The other sister, by the way, was Annie Girardot. Uh, yeah, of course it was. Yeah, I was thinking I always mix her up with that Jean Moreau. They're very similar, but yeah. 
I mostly just know her as the mother from the piano teacher. Another set of masochistic films, I bet. <laughs> For some reason, we do a lot of those on this show. I'm not sure why that is. I don't know, Mike. Yeah, maybe that's, bad, a, Mike. Maybe that's a show in itself. Find out why Mike does all these set of masochistic films. I think that uh, there's in this film as well, there's this interesting aspect of performance that uh, the kind of the performative aspects. I think that it, it's a nice device. Um, by Cavani because it does intellectualize it. It makes it in some ways an easier watch because she, she kind of creates this idea of stages or I mean, all the, I don't know about you guys, but all the flashback scenes to me feel very much like very staged, like they could be on, on a literally in a theater in some way. Even there, when they're paled out, you know, made to look sullen, it looks like stage makeup in some ways, you know, it almost, and, and, uh, and Rampling's hair, her haircut, and, you know, there's just something that's not so much about the realism, but of the, this heavily stylized piece. And, and I think that you've got these different stages or stage, stages, interestingly, in, in, both senses of the word in the film like you can the hotel basically called the opera hotel you know sort of suggests this place of performance and this place of drama you know as you enter there that's what you would expect and Cavani obviously you know she has being someone who's directed a lot of opera as well late in her, later in her career, obviously that plays I think that's quite pointed that she's made that decision they even go to the opera at some point, so they're literally in a theatre. You have the Burt's dance sequences, which is a, a performance, whether in the privacy of the hotel room or for the other Nazi soldiers. You have that Dietrich performance by Lucia, very stage light. They're even wearing those masks. Max has that kind of pancake makeup on at that point where he's – very excited because he's delivering her the head. Yeah, the head's in the box. <laughs> the head in the box. This idea we not the vast. We don't actually really get to the courts or get into this idea of the court, but that's just another performative thing. And then the apartment, like you know, that as the final apartment, which is like the Alamo, where they're holed up and you know being starved. Uh, which is interesting because of the starvation aspect of the camps. So it's like they're taken right back to this place where in many ways they were most happy, which is, the you know, that very challenging thing to say to a lot of people. And then they, you know, they're even denied their kind of last supper, if you know what I mean, and then they just walk out. And it's the idea of the biblical sense, you know, Max talks a bit about that and that whole the head presentation being his Salome moment. You have some critics talk about it or when I say critics, I don't necessarily mean official critics, but just critics of the film talk about it as being unbelievable. But then at the same token, I think that they would be pissed off if it was too believable because it would then be too crass and too hard to watch. But I think she actually goes to a lot of trouble to both humanise and intellectualise the presentation of the story. So that performative aspect really plays out in a strong, strong way to me. You also had the aspect that Bogart and Rampling changed the script. They ad-libbed a lot of their dialogue. 
and played it with utter conviction that it should be a love story above everything else. And their chemistry is incredible. They were friends, weren't they? They were good friends. I think Bogart wanted her for the role, and you can see that. I think she, Cavani wanted, if I remember rightly, Mia Farrow possibly. Yeah, there was a few that she wanted for the role. I'm trying to think who else it was she wanted. First of all, Romy Schneider. Romy Schneider was like the queen of 70s existential romances. And I've got like this obsession with these kind of romance. I am a diehard romantic. I'm terrible. I'm horribly sentimental and I just love romance, which you probably wouldn't think. But this sort of romance, like a fatalistic or an existential romance. When I wrote about The Night Porter, I talked about it in terms of love as a form of spiritual decay. It's not we think of as the Hollywood romance, which I think because it is a romance, people avoid calling it a romance. I looked on the wiki page and it's like something about the war drama. It's like, no, it's not. It's a romance. But they have to like frame it somewhere else. People think the romance should be something. It should be this like happy ever after salvation thing. And it should be this. And it's like, no, the romance traditionally in literature was not that it was Romeo and Juliet it was like love is destruction you know you fall in love with someone you're gonna die or they're gonna leave you or it's gonna destroy you this real dominance of existential horrible uncomfortable romances which I adore and Schneider was in so many of those she worked with like Claude Sauté a number of times and so I can totally see why Schneider was the one pick for this and rampling is absolutely brilliant i'm not going to take anything away from rampling she did another film the year after this i think called fresh of the orchid i don't know if either of you've seen that she is like this young woman like an heiress who's kidnapped and taken away and that's like another sort of complicated romancing where she plays like a captive character in it it's got all small singleray in it in a later role she's absolutely brilliant but that, that really sort of dirty, sad, existential, tragic romance about self-destruction. You know, Last Tango does it so brilliantly. But the 70s was just dominated with these films and into the, I think, into the 80s. And there are some 90s, but then it reverted back to the Hollywood thing. And and it feels like a betrayal to people how like romance is supposed to be feel good, I think, in cinematic terms, or that's how it's seen in the mainstream. Whereas, you know, in a literary form it wasn't feel good. It was it was horrible. It was there to make you feel sad. You know, one of the most romantic books ever written, Wuthering Heights, about a horrible abusive relationship where this woman dies and you know, you've got class anger and oh my god, I love it. So I can totally see why Schneider would have would have been cast for this because she was the queen of those films. She did so many of those films, but she was like this, you know, started off as like top film star and, you know, in all these like really huge sort of films, the princess role, you know, that sort of thing. And then by the 70s, she's in this like really sleazy existential romance, like really sleazy. But you think about that tragedy of these kind of doomed, these especially heterosexual romances. There was one, I don't know whether you can remember, 
in the early 2000s that came out and it was actually a happy S&M story, uh, which was the secret secretary with James Spader. And that. I love the secretary. That's one of my favorite films ever. Isn't it? I love it's, that it's, film. it's wonderful, but that's a happy ending. James Spader, it is, but it's, it's, but it's got Maggie Gyllenhaal in it and James Spader. So. Yeah, you can have happy endings in S&M stories. Come on. Yeah, it doesn't all have to be about, you know, destruction and... (laughs) Though I think one of the things that makes people super uncomfortable is the idea of power dynamics in relationships. And I'm sorry, folks, but every relationship has power dynamics, whether it is as overt as an S&M relationship or just the whole, like, well, you do the laundry, I do the cooking type of things. There are are these dynamics it's playing roles it's the idea of role role playing essentially or the roles you play in life and that's you know plays into that performative aspect of this film i think that you know we all have roles in every relationship we have whether it's a romantic relationship or even just basic friendship or familial relationships but the roles are really pronounced in s&m relationships so that's where you know she could really play that up in this film Well, they're pronounced, but at the same time, they're a little unexpected. Like the idea of Charlotte Rampling mounting or Lucia mounting Max. It's like, oh, no, no, he is the one in charge. He should be the one doing this. And it's like, no, there's this whole thing. Like, It's often that, though, with the submissive is often the one who's really... Yeah, Duke of Burgundy, I think, is the film that shows that the most, is how... And the whole relationship is actually controlled by the sub. I love that film. It's absolutely brilliant. So do I. And in Secretary, it's Maggie Gyllenhaal's character that's actually provoking James Spader. You know, she recognizes this thing and she goes out. It's hilarious. She goes out of her way to provoke it from him. Night Porter does show that. Like, it shows that Lucia has power within that situation that's the sub and i think again that's a big no-no like how can you suggest a woman has obviously there's different levels of consent and that's a whole other conversation but she's not just consenting she's actually aggressively provoking max because that's what she wants and obviously she's a very young woman this is all she's known about sex you know this is all she's known about relationships you know so that is the only thing she can do she's married to the like conduct it's boring you know she wants to be with max and again something that i guess when it comes to women that's kind of outrageous like how dare like charlotte rampin said people say like how dare you how dare you buy into this thing where you know you are this woman that actually wants this monster but david huckvale he wrote a whole book on dirt bogart and i totally recommend it because he's brilliant david huckvale or Dr. David Huckvale, he he described it as a gothic film and looked at all the gothic elements, and obviously I love gothic, and it made total sense, so I hadn't thought of it in that way until I read his book, and it's like, yeah, this does make sense, because it is a, really about a woman who falls in love with a monster, which is like what Dracula is about, it's what Carmina is about, you know, this, this sort of uh, majestic in ruin gothic archetype the byronic hero you know what is the big thing about heathcliff he's horrible but yet he's compelling you know kathy loves him does do that it is essentially in a a gothic film at his heart maybe not gothic horror but definitely gothic romance you know with this young woman who doesn't stay pure she's like corrupted by that monster Uh, and that's often the point where 
where, you know, the more Puritans sort of tune out when the woman wants to be with the monster or become the monster. That's when they're like, no, this has gone too far. And the ultimate monster for our generation or the post-war generation is the Nazi, isn't it? And nothing comes close. Nothing is more horrific in terms of monstrosity than the Nazi. You know, there's no monster they could come up with in fiction that is worse than the Nazi, you know, because it's the scariest, most horrible thing, isn't it? Especially for Europeans. Well, you're all about gothic monsters, Emma. I love, I, I love, I love gothic the gothic monster. monsters. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think it's a really good angle to take. You know, it's the beauty and the beast kind of thing, you know. I mean, you know, you can. Uh, I wrote a book on a gothic monster fly, for Christ's sake, you know. She's like, it's, it's, it's the same thing. It's a Beauty and the Beast story. It's kind of different because we still live with the war. You know, even in England, there's monuments and places that were bombed and, you know, all the people that live through it still living. And so we were more affected by like, everywhere in Europe is sort of has still has this very close relationship to World War Two because... So much of it was destroyed and then reconstructed. And so it's interesting that the Americans always removed to that, apart from they always go on about fucking Pearl Harbor. Sorry to (laughs) Americans I like, but, you know, like this was the biggest thing that happened in the war. And it's like Britain spent years just being bombed and bombed and bombed. So I guess there's a slight more of a, you know, we still have that that World War Two. They love to sing Vera Lynn. They still like to bring the like. There's still this attachment to it. I guess Americans don't have like Americans seem to have gone the other way. America, we just like to be surprised by things. You know, Pearl Harbor, we got surprised by 9/11. We get surprised by. It's, it's like just- how dare these people? Like you know, we're untouchable. The European critics seem to get the night and more. And this is interesting, whereas the the biggest sort of reaction was from the American critics who had that sort of remove to it. I know there's like a huge Jewish population in in the US, but, you know, outside of that, obviously outside of people like Sontag, who's writing about a very specific thing and very specific traumatic memory, you know, just this general backlash, this more Puritan backlash to the film Whereas European critics seem to understand it slightly more like, I guess because European film within that time did tend to be more complex with the romance. It didn't do the the whole Hollywood thing. Even like Hollywood films were doing this. Films like Blooming Love, where you got old George Siegel raping his ex-wife and this weird love triangle with Chris Christopherson. Even the Americans were doing it a bit. Uh, not to the extent that Europeans were, but they were like, you know, you had the Woody Allen romantic comedy come along in that period and and things were changing. But the American backlash to the film was interesting. Not to say that Americans don't get nuance or, but it seemed much more visceral. And like Emma said at the very beginning, like Im- like an immature, an immature response to to a very complex film. Even though I didn't totally understand it in my mid-twenties, I understood that it was complex. Like, I understood there were things going on that I didn't perhaps understand. And I appreciated that. You know, I think that much is obvious from the things that, like, Emma spoke of, the the aspects of performance. And it's not like, oh, we're, we're presenting this sort of gratuitous piece of filth to offend you. It's quite obvious. It's like a whole intellectual thing going on you've got Bogart one of the most loved actors of his generation there 
It does surprise me, you know, reading some of those older reviews from American reviewers, just the absolute hate that they had for this film and anger, like almost like irrational anger. Yeah, like this whole, how could you do this to me? Not to mention, this is a woman, I know we talked about it when we did Lena Mueller, a female director, Italian director like that, you know, her and Nina, that was it. That was it. You didn't have women directors. Obviously, you know, we look at Cavani's career. And like you said as well, Kat, I mean, there weren't a lot of women making films at that, at that time. I think she was. Well, not anywhere, but especially not in Italy, which was, you know, really when you hear stories about that time, even for just actresses, it was like it was the total boys club, very misogynistic culture at the time. Uh, so it takes a tough woman. And she was the only, I think she went to the University of Bologna, which is where a friend of mine teaches guitar, of all things. And she said she was the only woman doing filmmaking at that time. So, yeah, that's like that's really huge. And then she's, you know, I don't know whether anyone's watched her doco on the women of the resistance, but, you know, I thought that that could have been when I when I decided to watch it I thought oh this could be really dry you know and it was so freaking compelling to watch this and see that she was watching these women who had been part of the Italian resistance at the time and seminal and tortured and imprisoned and all these things and speaking really matter-of-factly about it really articulate women and they're slightly older at that stage. Obviously, this was in the 1960s that they were interviewed and but their recollections were really vivid and really these stories were just absolutely compelling and utterly terrifying and at the same time. But watching them and seeing them, they you kind of because they all had these like 60s bouffant hair or they had that kind of the 60s glasses on and you know, that sort of styling. So it was sort of out of its, in another time, they were calling a time out of the time that they were being interviewed. But then you could see them on the way to being these Italian nonnas. And I could imagine them, you know, just these, these, you know, someone's nonna, you know, cooking pasta in the, and, and these stories that they came out with. And she, it was a nice tight little 50 odd minutes of these incredible, just, you know, like talking heads. And I think that, that, you know, comes out, you can kind of feel, even though that, you know, it definitely has this narrative cinema journey to the Night Porter and it feels like a real journey film, even though it's like only in some ways only a couple of stage pieces, but you really get this sense of travel through it, especially in terms of what the characters go through. She was totally emotionally, she was emotionally affected by it, though. It really stuck with her. And that's what then drove her to make the night pour. Cause she just yeah, yeah. You could see how that she just, um, she's obviously not coming at it. There's no way you can look at her body of work and think that she's coming at it from just like this exploitation angle just to provoke I mean, it's a provocative film, but it's not about provoking in the sense of I just want to get a rise out of my audience. And and Bogart himself, I mean, you you hear you read about Bogart's war stories, they're absolutely horrific. What he went through. When he he was in the camps, he went into the camps to liberate camps with women, like women's camps, and told these 
stories of like, you know, seeing bodies of piles of rotten, rotting corpses, but then more horrifically that there were people like underneath, women underneath who were still alive, who were trying to give the victory sign because they knew that, that these camps were being liberated and they were pleased, but they were, they ended up dying. They were just, they just got to know that moment that there was hope for the world, I guess, or for others in there. And he talks about them coming and wanting to hug him and others saying, don't touch them. They've got typhoid and all, you know, and here he is playing. He's played more than once a German, right? To think that he would come at this film in any way of, you know, being sympathetic to Nazis or be, you know, these are all these people who have come to this film have in some way, well, definitely Cavani and Bogard anyway, somehow first, first-hand experience. Cavani just through her upbringing, you know, in, in Italy and she had a, you know, she had that kind of the bourgeois father and the very, you know, Marxist mother, anti-fascist family on the maternal side. So they all have a very personal attachment to this subject matter. So that adds a lot to it as well. Absolutely. I know Bogart was just really done in with the whole protection. He just put so much of himself into it. It just nearly crippled him. But he just put everything in. Well, he did with everything that he did, really. Bogart was just incredible. But, you know, playing that character and being that character really took it out of him because he wanted it to be, it had to be this big love story for him. It had to have, you know, Max had to be someone he believed in. And I think that's why he comes over as kind of vulnerable and, and even sweet with his little head in the box, even though it's kind of horrific. If he will say, no, it wouldn't happen. If it was going to happen anywhere, it would have happened there. You know? Yes, exactly. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure you know, <laughs> a lot worse things happen and bringing someone's head in a box probably was like the least thing you could do. But just the whole conviction that he carried for the part, I think really carries over then. You've also got like that whole aspect of forbidden love and, and things like that that pops up in a few of his other films, this idea of, you know, outsider love or forbidden love. And I don't really know how he felt about his own sexuality, but he did seem drawn to those sort of roles, these very complex relationships or difficult relationships, which was such a counterpoint to his early work where he was like the sweet doctor in love, you know, the really beautiful British boy, totally heterosexual, matinee idol. All the women loved him, you know, he was the pinup. He was like the cheeky lad. And then he just played his these really dark character, complicated characters on the other side of his work. Just went so beyond that. He wasn't ever going to stay as the matinee idol, but it's I just... I grew up with him on the other side, just thinking he was this really sweet boy and he was cute. And then got older and realized that Bogart had actually been in all this like really transgressive cinema. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing. And neither he or Ramplin were actually worried about, you know, reputations or being film stars. I think both of them were 
you know, amazing because they were the beautiful people. So we never really had much of a film industry here, but the post-war period was kind of it, the only time we really had our own industry. And Rampling comes up in the in the British New Wave, that's when she rises, and, and Bogart was the generation before her. But doing almost like very family-friendly sort of entertainment, this very safe sort of film. And you think like stars like that would be groomed. We didn't really have a studio system, but would be groomed by producers to be a certain type or you're going to be the new with with Dirk it's like you will be the new matinee idol you know you'd think that actors like that would kind of worry about their reputations but both of those were very quick to start disassembling those reputations and Rampling before she even really got established was was in there you know Dirk took a little bit more time but then he does victim victim you know watching that that was such a transgressive film you know, playing a playing a closeted gay man when he was a closeted gay man. Like, talk about putting your hand in the fire. Well, you could go to prison for being gay then, and it's almost like he did have that compulsion to put his hand in the in the fire. Everyone, of course, everyone thought, "Oh God, brilliant performance by this!" Like, you know, not knowing really that he had this strong personal attachment to the subject. I think it was the first British film uh, that used the term or the word homosexual. Yeah, it was like, you know, you think about the British is kind of, we are very uptight. You know, we did sort of let loose of it in the new wave and we did things like the killing of Sister George, but that was just after the, the law had been changed or the leather boys, you know, some of that stuff was like, whoa, this is quite out there for the time. Where, you know, even in the 80s, you know, when we had Boy George and everything, we had that whole counter gay pop scene thing that was going on for a bit. Marilyn. Marilyn. You know, it was the sort of, you never said, like, unless it was used as a slur, people just didn't talk about it. I remember my man could never handle the word lesbian. Like, my cousin Jenny is a lesbian, and my man would always call her a ladies' lady. I remember she'd whisper it, and I remember her saying that to me, and she was going, Jenny's a ladies' lady. And I'm like, what do you mean, a lesbian? And she went, oh, God, say that. You know, like, (laughs) but that's what the British culture was like, and for a darling like Dirk Bogart (laughs) to kind of be flirting, even the servant, even though it's not explicitly gay, you've got this, like, weird couple. They're like this domestic, they're like this old married couple who snipe each other. (laughs) James Fox. It's like this like weird housewife that you know Dirk's like getting annoyed because he's late and he's has got to do the washing up. It's like it is totally bizarre. An accident. He plays this like revolting teacher who like gets involved with what's her name? Is it Jacqueline Sassard? Some young impressionable student. Him and his mate. And oh my god, he's just like. Yeah, my nan would have never stood for that. She loved old Dirk. She he was one of her favourites. I don't think she ever saw the servant or the night porter though. That would have finished her. I think he's well. He's quite a feat in in the night porter. I mean, you know, he doesn't. He's not. There's not a lot of machismo going on in in that role at all. No, though he seems uncomfortable with Bert's dance, that which is the most homoerotic thing. That I've seen a long time. I love that we keep coming back to this because it is so. I think if there's one thing you could say about the Nazis is they were homoerotic as fuck, and I I don't know, you know, what was 
going on there, but they really worshipped that whole messy man thing, didn't they? And I love that she got that in as a kind of aesthetic thing, you know, this whole body worship and, and things like that. I always thought, you know, is he a bit, is he like a bit bi? Like what has been going on? And there's this kind of weird subtext, this like gigolo thing going on at the hotel. and Right. And I thought that the Countess was coming on to him. Yeah, and he's in this sort of position where he hasn't got as much power as her, so he's bringing her pills, and there's this like weird, like you can tell he doesn't really like her, but he's forced to be sort of subservient to her in a way. And but he finds his way to do things like he doesn't give her, you know, the water, and she's like, ah, oh, but they'll stick stick in my throat, you know. Well, and that whole thing where. He's like, the usual? And she's like, yeah, the usual. And then you see her knees come up, and I'm just like, oh, boy. All right. (laughs) (laughs) But didn't you find that, like, the Grand Budapest Hotel? Like, the Rafe Fiennes character? No, totally, isn't it? (laughs) Which, oh, my God, I love that film. I know so many people hate Wes Anderson, but it's like, how can you hate that film? It's like, oh, my God, like, Fiennes is this, like, gigolo man. And Rafe Fiennes... Doing comedy. I mean, you had the probably one of my favourite lines ever. What was it? She was she was shaking like a shitting dog. <laughs> we talked a little bit about collaboration, and what's surprising to me is when there's the whole let's call it an apartment siege. This whole thing of them cutting off the food, cutting off the electricity, cutting off any help. It's how many people turn against them. The day porter is the guy that cuts the electricity. The gigolo that was serving the countess, he's there in the other apartment, and he's gotten to the the neighbor across the way with the little yippee dog. The busybody neighbor. You always need one of those busybody neighbors with the yippee dog. You know, that's another like <laughs> she's like the Ruth Gordon character. <laughs> it turns into like the tenant at that point. Yes, though, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, it was yeah. like the tenant, but it was also mixed with a little bit of, and I know this had yet to be done, but in the realm of the senses, this whole idea of this couple, this this couple that is doomed, having sex, stuck in this apartment. I wouldn't have been surprised if Charlotte Rampling had castrated him and walked out with his testicles in her purse or something. Cause it was just very, very intense and just such a doomed romance. And then their walk across that bridge or attempting to walk across it. Wow. Blind Beast is another one. I think that ran through my head at one point too. Yeah. This whole idea of a kidnapped woman who then sort of falls, not just falls in love with a kidnapper, wants to be consumed by him. Like, and then that they're trapped in the dark, too. Yeah, this weird sort of bataille element to it, this like really taboo sort of destructive sex where people don't just want to have sex. They, they want to dark, they want to like consume by the abyss. And it definitely, it definitely would play as a good double bill as that, even though like stylistically they're really different. But that's another one about a very sort of messed up relationship with a woman who is captive but then manages to get power within that situation really i love that film i just love films that are like that turn the tables on that or question these power dynamics and um one thing i love about the night porter and blind beast and on all of those films is the fact that the women are not victimized like they're given sexual agency in a way you know they're given a choice and last tango in paris you know there's this outward thing. How would these women let that happen to them? 
But that's like this weird, virtuous sort of Puritan thing about it. Like, so what if they do? There is true agency there. It's not this token agency that they should do the right thing. They do exactly what they want, regardless of whether it's the right thing or not, regardless of the fact that they know that they're going to die for it, but they do it anyway. I just find that really powerful, a really powerful aspect of films like this that use use S&M in different ways. Even like Secretary does it. You know, there was that other one, Chambermaid Lynn, where this very sort of socially awkward woman finds power within a lesbian S&M relationship that is with a with a sex worker so it's like totally imbalanced I think it is a really good playground to you to really like Mike said strip down those aspects of pure power and look at them and how they function and got the power talking about playground the merry-go-round or that swing with the, the gunfire for some reason that that just made me think of Polanski's Bitter Moon, which is another one about that's basically a kind of S&M relationship and that power dynamic. But that was played, when that was used, the swing in that was used to play like high melodrama really in terms of the music and the was them reaching out to each other. But I kind of felt like it had to still, whether it was consciously or not, would have been taken from this film. You can see so many scenes in this film that have just popped up in elements. Like, I don't know about the lineage of that, that idea of the braces and the, you know, Charlotte um, as Lucia bare-breasted and the braces and the, the men's pants and the SS hat on. I know that that was the costume designer's decision to go with that, but it feels like that kind of overtly that look stemmed from that film, like literally stemmed from the Night Porter. I don't know whether you guys know of any example beforehand, but it seems to be talked about like this was the film that sort of set off that particular look, you know, and it is something, it is a really, it is really sexy, you know. There's no way that you could say that she doesn't do that scene being very sexy as this woman child too. That's the thing that's really amazing about Rampling. She was 22 when she made the film, but she really does at a couple of times look like not even a 15-year-old girl. She looks like she could be 14. She looks so young, so young. But that's the amazing, I mean, you know, not just physical looks, but the fact that she could, you know, the, the the talent of an actor actually create that sense of, you know, in the way she looks and, and looks around as in, in terms of the way she gazes and, and moves, that she could look so incredibly young, but then also sophisticated, which is a role she plays as the wife of the, of the, the conductor who all just seems to care about himself. No wonder she wanted to go for Max. Oh, he's crap, that husband. And then, like, you get this sense that that marriage that she's got, even though you don't see very much of it, but she doesn't exist in that marriage. She goes wherever her husband wants her to go. She sits in his performances. She has no hobby or social life of her own. And you don't really know much about her life, but she seems like this very alienated, lonely figure that is just a plus one for her husband. And to Max, she was his whole world. So when they meet again, she gets that level of intensity. She gets that entire focus because she is his whole world. 
I was wondering if her hairdo is a reference to Vertigo with the whole like swirl that's going on. And we get that focused really prominently the first time we see her and then also at the opera and the opera seems to me like it's the turning point for her because she is very much in that relationship with her husband she's just like hey i want to get out of here she's so super upset after she sees max in the hotel the husband's just like oh i'm reading these reviews and i really don't give a shit about you and she's so upset and just is like, we have to go now. And then on the would seem to him, possibly if he was paying attention, she's just like, oh, what? You know what? I'm going to stay behind. I'm going to do some shopping. You go on to the next city. I'll see you in Berlin. I'm going to stay here. So there's that moment, that very critical moment where she does make that decision as far as I'm going to stay here. I'm going to confront Max. And she even witnesses, you know, talking about looking and and who's got the power of the gaze, she spies on part of the pretrial for Max. So she's hearing about, you know, oh, there are witnesses and they need to be filed away and all this. Remarkably easily, don't you think? Oh, she was well, able yeah. to You would think that, that they would have closed the door, possibly. Yeah. Yeah, but they don't care because they're the great ones. I, I do like that fact about them. I think they are, you know, they're criticizing Max because he can't let go and, you know, he has to let go and move on. But they haven't moved on. They're just as trapped as he is to keep repeating this thing where they feel like they have power when really, what are they, like, what do they do in their everyday lives? They've got these, like, shitty jobs and... I love that they they actually picked up at one at one point because you know this whole idea of the the Nazis loving their symbols and everything and there's this definite shot where she she has them talking to that, that's the the group of Nazis talking but they're in they're shadowed on a car and it has the Mercedes Benz badge. And see, that was at sort of really at one stage, that was almost the replacement of the swastika because everyone, you know, they were known for disappearing into Mercedes-Benz as a company. They were just employed all these ex-Nazis. I don't think we'll get us sued for that because I think it's pretty much public knowledge, but either there or um, in Brazil, <laughs> you know. <laughs> or the American Space Program. Oh, the American Space Program, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's where Werner Von Braun, he came over and helped us out with our rockets. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, the guy who was going, who was working on the rocket that was going to destroy England came over with Project Paperclip and managed, he and a whole bunch of Nazi scientists. Uh, I think the states, the states love doing that, though, don't they? They like training the terrorists or, you know, taking them in to do something like create bombs and... <laughs> Yeah, you know, dedicating Rambo 3 to the valiant soldiers of the Mujahideen, you know. All right, we're going to take a break and come back with an interview with Professor Gitana Marone, the author of The Gaze in the Labyrinth, the cinema of Liliana Cavani, right after these brief messages. From, from page to screen. To screen. So they have, nine times out of ten, they have to send it back to you unopened or just throw it in the garbage can. Things don't always look exactly as we envision our life to look. But sometimes it works out and turns out even better. Gregor Fisher, his bacon number is two because he was uh, appeared with January Jones in Love Actually and January Jones and Kevin Bacon appeared in X-Men First Class together. I've got to say, the very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas, now that 
makes me want to rush out. It's about the acting, about the writing. That's really what theatre is for me. Probably had more names than uh, than Prince or whatever. Never mind. There's a joke for the oldies. Um, oh, like, who's Prince? Who's oh. he? I'd just like to see uh, Mr. Freeze hiring his bad guys. Going right, okay. So you're a psycho, right? Can you ice skate? Head over to iTunes, Spreaker, and Stitcher, and put in the search box from page to screen. Before we even talk about Liliana Cavani, I want to know more about you. Can you tell me how you got into academia? I would say I've always been in academia all my life. I chose uh, modern languages uh, in Italy, uh, which is the equivalent of comparative literature in the Anglo-Saxon world. At the University of Palermo, I chose for languages with English as my first language. And I graduated on American literature. So I began being an assistant at the University of Palermo. But then upon the advisor of my professor, I went to England. And I began teaching at the University of Warwick. She had told me, oh, but only one year, because if you stay longer, the risk is you may not come back. But while I was there in England, I met some visiting professors from America, and they kept on telling me, well, you worked on Scott Fitzgerald, you are an American. They say, you ought to come to America at least for one year. And to make a long story short, from England, I used to take a, a plane from Palermo to Gatwick and back and forth. And then uh, I began applying. Uh, I finally accepted the fellowship from Northwestern University. I liked the letter they wrote to me. In three years, I did my American PhD on Italian theater with a very comparative uh, field of studies. And uh, I went back to Italy. My intention was not really to stay abroad, but after being three years uh, in uh, England and three years in America began missing the academic background because Italy is very hierarchical, highly structured. So I spent a couple of years back. I got involved with the American consulate. I got involved with publishing at the same time. And then I decided to come back and my chair from Northwestern recommended me for a position in upstate New York, in Rochester. But then when they had an opening, they called me back in Chicago. And I came to Princeton from Northwestern. The reason being that in Rochester, I met my current husband, who is a cinematographer. And he wanted to move either to LA or New York. So when the position came up at Princeton for... A modernist uh, and so on. I applied, and everybody was telling me, as a woman and an Italianist, you have no chance. Well, I got the job, and um, they kept on telling me, well, now that you are a Princeton, of course, Northwestern gave me a counter offer, wanted me to stay. Once I arrived at Princeton, they kept on telling me, now from Princeton, find yourself a great job because as a woman, <laughs> well, I tell you, with the new millennium, a lot has changed here. But up to the new millennium, only one female in the whole university would get tenure. 
and about five guys. So it was really a different Princeton. But I loved them. Uh, the department it was a huge uh, Romance Languages department, the first in the country. They gave me the opportunity to develop a film, to teach theater, my interests, uh, and I got involved immediately with film studies. Uh, the Adam Sydney was here and a great supporter of Italian cinema. I got involved with the then women's studies, uh, and we implemented a lot of changes. And against all odds, I got tenure. I got tenure because my first book on Italian theater won a prize. And then I had the Cavani book already accepted by Princeton University Press. So in a way, writing about Liliana was a risk, a risk because she was always viewed as a controversial filmmaker. Although scholars like De Lauretis and Kejo Silverman had written on her very well. But everybody was telling me, you are taking a big risk because she's a difficult person and so on and so forth. And then a friend from the Italian embassy in Washington who knew her said to me, I tell you, you are going to get along with her. So... At Christmas, uh, we were going to Italy. I had a meeting in Rome. And the moment she walked into the room, uh, I knew I was going to write a book on her and I was going to work well. And uh, I have to say, she gave me her archives. She never interfered. I was dealing primarily with her right arm, Paola Tallarigo, that Sadly, she passed away very early, uh, but they gave me the freedom. Uh, she never knew what I was writing about. Uh, when uh, the book was in press, I brought to Rome the manuscript, and she had somebody, because her English was not too polished, uh, to, to overview. And then she called me and she said, I love your book. Thank you. We have been friends ever since, basically. I've been privileged uh, through my career to work on authors where those who had passed away became close to the family. So I had also that kind of journey. But at the same time, the freedom, uh, the great freedom to let me do the book I wanted. In fact, the book on Liliana won the MLA Bayano Price, where everybody competes in literature. And uh, I have to say, after Liliana worked on Francesco Rosi, who centennial is this year, and also won a prize. And Francesco, too, gave me great freedom, great freedom. And uh, I think I've been privileged uh, to, to have uh, a journey that was personal with the authors, but also the distance. Uh, to be able to work the way I wanted. What was the first time you encountered one of Cavani's films? Since I was a kid, I had friends that loved cinema. Even at 10 years old, we used to spend the matinees on Sunday at 2 o'clock going to movie theaters. Unless it was with a restricted age, we would just walk in. That was our Sunday 
Then, of course, I would go with my parents, but with my friends at two o'clock every Sunday, we would see a film. That's how I saw the great American movies. I saw everything not knowing they were great movies because it was this experience. I recall seeing Galileo because the time it was released much later. And I recall what happened when the night porter was released and never had the same critical upheaval with the films of Bertolucci uh, that preceded, of course, Visconti, who was a great patron of Liliana. It was Visconti who actually intervened to tell uh, Dirk Booker that he had to give a chance uh, to this young filmmaker. And he accepted the role and uh, he asked her to have Charlotte Rampling. Uh, and uh, they were friends ever since, ever since. Even today, um, Charlotte uh, is in touch with her all the time. When uh, two years ago, the Berlin Film Festival gave her the career golden uh, bear, she asked that that would be Liliana to give her the award. The award. So it, she gets very close to the actors. So they take a journey together. Uh, and uh, it was a film uh, that's very dear to her. In a way, when, uh, as you know, in November 2020, there was a Blu-ray uh, redistribution of the film. And um, I read immediately some of the reviews from England. And you may know very well that in The Guardian, they reused the same kind of vocabulary of uh, 74 when the film came out. And I asked Liliana, uh, what do you think? Uh, what do you think? And uh, she has always approached criticism uh, with great elegance, uh, tries to explain what really she was trying to do more than attack uh, the reviewer. At the time, uh, she told me again uh, that uh, definitely the, the fact that the victim, Lucia, of the night porter may love her torturer. Is that possible in a situation where life uh, depends on others? And... Uh, uh, you know, I happened to read, uh, by chance, uh, working on a course where, where we were primarily selecting female filmmakers from the Mediterranean. I happened to, to come across a documentary by Maya Sarfati, Love It Was Not. I don't know if you have seen that film, but uh, in this documentary, she reconstructs uh, the story of a Jewish young prisoner at Auschwitz that fell in love with an Austrian SS officer. The moment she arrived and the moment they look at each other, it was love. And this officer not only helped her survive, but helped everyone in her ward to survive by bringing food and so on. And Tarfati um, says that when she was much younger, one of her teachers knew uh, the family 
and told her the story that in 1972, during the trials of the ex-Nazis in Vienna, this Jewish woman now married and living in Israel in Tel Aviv received a letter and was the wife of this officer telling her that she knew about their love story if she would come and testify at the trial to save his life. And she went. And uh, of course, it was a love of the past. Each built a different life, but it was so real while they were there. And it made me reflect on uh, the way the film sometimes has been approached as Cavani uh, wanted uh, only a sexual theme. Uh, while the background is very, very rich in literature and philosophy because Kavani comes from classical literature. That was her doctorate at Bologna. So she has an enormous background, and it is not by chance that uh, Foucault wrote a beautiful article saying that of L'Amour Petrov, the night porter was the one that actually uh, was uh, visualizing the power, the power of Nazism, and how violence, sadomasochism, philosophically, is a relationship about power. It's not about sex, but it's about power. She had told me so many stories about uh, the set uh, where some of the scenes, uh, the critics uh, uh, mention as most controversial, they were actually improvised by Bogart and Rampling. They were not in the script. Her script was more historical, was more thought-oriented, and many of the of the scenes were actually improvised. And uh, she, she used to tell me a story that the English was basically non-existent. The film was filmed in English, and she would ask Bogart, but how come my dialogue is so short? And he would say, don't worry, in English everything is shorter. He would actually cut the dialogue and perform more. Because she was saying, you know, behind the scenes, there was Charlotte with the baby. We were all laughing until, and then the moment the camera was on, right, when you have great actors, the atmosphere changes. It makes you reflect how to give a chance to young people, how her team gave her trust. You know, you're talking about Kimar Kalliv as an, an editor. is still considered the number one Italy ever had. Piero Tosi, who just passed away, uh, did the costumes, passed away. Alfio Contini, a cinematographer. These were big names, big names. I think Italian cinema was able in the post-war years to have uh, masterpieces, films that have stayed in time because of that trust that the more experienced people in the film business would have towards the young. They would take risks. Producers would take risks, but also a name that makes the film look good. 
And these days it's become more and more difficult unless there is the money, unless there is this, and they're afraid. In Italy, nobody shows, but there are the unions, but here it's become very, very difficult. I tell you, my husband is a cinematographer. He is an independent, and um, he enjoys very much when he does uh, documentaries, uh, films with young people, and uh, they take the journey, and they win. Uh, they win. He won uh, Toronto beating with, with uh, a documentary, beating the Who is Who in, at the time. So it's, it's still trying, but it's more difficult these days to, to have. Uh, at times I ask Liliana, what does it mean to be the director of the Night Porter? As if uh, the rest of her career somehow uh, it is less known by non-specialists. But what does it mean? And she she views that film as I try to do in my book, not as a single film, but as a film as part of a whole journey. She has taken from uh, the first uh, Francesco d'Assisi to Galileo, the, the Cannibali, Milarepa, and, and see how that film in a way progresses what is central to her cinema, in my view, was uh, a character meets uh, someone. It's an encounter that changes the journey of your life. And where is this journey taking you? For Francis of Assisi, he was a transgressor at the time. He moved outside the walls of Assisi. He moved, he left the, the bourgeois family. The, the rich merchant and went to live with the lep- lepers. Galileo defied the, the limits and the present tense. They're all historical characters, even when she deals uh, with the Antigone myths in the cannibals. Uh, it's applied to Italy of the late 60s with the upheavals of the students, what was happening. And uh, the night porter, which is contemporary to Milarepa, where she took the journey, this ascetic figure also leaving the family and taking a journey of spirituality. Uh, it has to be viewed um, a career with the journey uh, that the artist is taking, is taking. And for me, the night porter is the moment when somehow she returns uh, to the shocking experience she had in doing the documentary on the Third Reich. In 61, 62, she did the documentary and she was the first one that saw some of the, the documentaries from the archives. It was very difficult at the time. She told me, uh, I was with my editor and when we began watching these films from the camps, we got sick. We could not believe the atrocity, but the fact that they would film everything. And and he was trying to understand what happens the night where these characters lives in the film is the night of Europe during fascism. And Vienna was the town, the city where most of the Nazis 
who did not go to South America changed their names and went in hiding. So it was really a reflection on the night of Europe with a philosophical take of her background. But I think without Bogart and Ramplin, it would have been an entirely different film. It would be more historical, more explanatory. And also without Kimarkali in the script, she had no flashbacks. It was a Kali who deconstructed the film and wanted the flashback. And so in a way, I think she is also somebody open to to taking the journey with her group, with her group. And I think these days it's very much into this mode. And as I mentioned, that for somebody like Carlo Rovelli, who is a scientist, a philosopher, to decide to collaborate, give the permission to work freely on her on his book, The Order of Time, but at the same time to work with her. It shows she's not just the sadomasochist, scandalous director of the night portal. The night portal. In a way, it's more scandalous the way she, the Francis of Assisi, Francesco with Mickey Rourke. And uh, Chiara, the character of Chiara of Assisi, She's worked enormously on uh, on that character because she's a very innovative uh, uh, character, and traditionally the focus has been on other saints, uh, but not on uh, Chiara of Assisi. In fact, she drops the word saint both from Francis and from Chiara. To her, they are not saints; uh, they are exceptional human beings. Uh, whose adventurous journey has changed the way we interpret our life. Uh, so we don't have to, to have the word saint in front of it. I don't know why I never realized this, that the flashbacks were put in via editing. I can't imagine how it would play out in a linear fashion. Well, a lot, of course, fell on the editing room uh, in the sense uh, that the film... Uh, was was shot chronologically. But then Akali is also the one who worked with Bernardo Bertolucci and the conformist. The conformist was also a film chronological. Akali deconstructed the film. And uh, he, he was an editor who would work nights and the director had to be pushed away. Basically, he was going to revisit the film as any great editor does. Uh, and uh, so a lot falls on, on the edit. In, the, in those days, they had the moviola in the editing room. And, uh, uh, and of course, it created a different journey by beginning in the present with the mood. Also, the, the photography of uh, Contini's beautiful photography. And, uh, and then... Uh, going back, it becomes uh, a journey of the unconscious. Of the unconscious is not just uh, two people that meet in the present. Uh, it becomes a journey of the unconscious, which is the same with the conformist of, uh, of Bertolucci. Another film I love uh, very much. Uh, but uh, So, Akali 
uh, passed away very young uh, in his mid-40s, uh, but uh, is still considered uh, the most creative editor of Italian cinema. And Gabriella Cristiani, who followed him, was his assistant. And when he passed away, she was entrusted by Bertolucci and the others to continue the work that he worked. She was his assistant. Uh, you see, ironically, Arcalli never won an Academy Award, but he has made history with films that are classical. Gabriela Cristiani won an Academy Award for the last time, Pero. What was it about the time period? I know that you mentioned the student uprisings. There was the trials in Vienna. I mean, it just feels like there were so many things happening in order to shape this moment of history to bring about films like The Damned, The Conformist, and now The Night Porter. It feels like, okay, we're ready to deal or try to deal with the past a little bit more through this lens of the present. Well, I think Italy was uh, with France. Uh, they were the first countries who dared to revisit their own past because France had the Republic of Vichy and Italy, of course, had the 20 years of fascism. Germany, for Germany, will take longer uh, to go back and revisit the past. Uh, Fassbinder will be the one who will break grounds. But in Italy, also because of the political arena where the left had a very strong impact as the party of the opposition. And let's not forget that Visconti had joined the Communist Party during the Republic of Saloy, had been part of the resistance. So it is really this group that feels they can revisit. But there is a culture. There are also filmmakers that bring to the art of cinema a background of cultural literature, the arts, and so on. So that going back is not simply criticism of our past, but becomes a way of making a film for the future generations. Uh, but the, the theme of the spectacle is central to all of them. So they are not uh, pedagogical films. Uh, I think they are all embedded. Cavani grew up uh, in Emilia-Romagna that after the war became one of the red regions with Tuscany. Uh, and uh, the grandfather was uh, an active anarchist, was a man of the left, uh, basically during fascism. She grew up, told me, reading Bakudi and so on. And uh, she said that that was her upbringing. And it was for that reason that while everybody took, uh, at the time was uh, PCI, the Communist Party, Italian Communist Party, the biggest in uh, Western Europe, um, took a card, Bertolucci and so on. Liliana never wanted a party car. She remained with no party car. But her characters, if we look at the journey of all our characters, they are all journeys towards a hope of freedom for the future. And uh, 
the end of the night porter is Greek tragedy. They don't elope happily ever after. And then see again, it's death and death. And this is how Greek tragedy closes the journey, the staging. And the death uh, happens also with the mythical characters like Francesco, where uh, in the, in the second Francesco, she opens with the image of the dead body and so on. So there is uh, this theme with Cavani where a Galileo who disappears basically at the end and uh, there is the shot of uh, Galileo having to declare publicly that what he has discovered is an error. Uh, and uh, Francesco, that in a way never wanted an order, somehow had to have an order. So in the present time, uh, there are always uh, problematic characters, even when they, they are positive characters. Somehow they are defeated in the present tense. It's the future. And in the future uh, of Nazism, clearly, uh, if we look at Cavani, who did the documentary on women of the resistance, that she has always been up front against any kind of discrimination and so on, so much so that she received at Venice the Bresson Prize, which is given to filmmakers whose work, in a way, inspires that, that great sense of ethical approach to the profession. I have to say that the Dyke Porter is not that scandalous today when we see the kind of violence for violence sake for a game. And the violence and the Dyke Porter makes you live with a great sense of uncomfort. It's not the kind of gut violence you forget and you think it was a game. Even the night porter, whether you... you, It's not a film that you can say, I like it. It's beautiful. But it's a film that really disturbs you because these things happen. And uh, one of the issues was also that uh, Lucia was uh, interpreted as being Jewish. She was uh, the daughter of a socialist. So she's there for political reasons, but at the same time, for Cavani, the range of persecution by the Nazis was very broad, very broad. And she has given many interviews where she felt uh, that the trials many times uh, after the Nuremberg trials, so all the other trials somehow became diluted with a lot of the officers saying, we didn't know, we didn't know, we didn't know. And somehow they, they really didn't pay for the crimes of war. They didn't pay. And that's something she was always strongly against, the fact that so many people got away by saying, oh, we didn't know. Or we follow orders. We follow, we were military and we followed orders. You know, I recall that when my book came out, I have to say the book was well received. I recall one video on Sight and Sound, a journal that I follow and I love, uh, where the 
reviewer was saying, this is a serious book, blah, 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 blah. I like this chapter, I like the other chapter. When he came to the night porter, he says, my only problem with this book is that the author is trying to give a status to a porno director. That's the word he used, porno director. But he was saying, I like this chapter like this, but when he came to the night porter, he's trying to give status to a porno director. That shows you how deeply the film may touch your unconscious drives because we are dealing with power. We are not dealing with sexual games. We are dealing with power games. And that's and the, even the, the figure of the dancer, the beautiful dancer that she has back also in Beyond Good and Evil. The dance is supposed to be freedom at the moment, but it becomes really also the moment of the gaze of power on the body. Yeah, the gaze is so strong through that movie, especially, you know, just having the camera actually looking at us, the audience, it just really is such a powerful image and just really clues you in that this is going to be so much about looking and who's in charge and who has that power of the gaze. No, and I know the fact that a favorite lens is the 50, uh, which does not deform, and she actually frames. So all the Movement is within the frame, so in a way, gives you more uh, of uh, of uh, a sense of uh, viewing the, the staging of history through this uh, two character. More so, if the camera had been very mobile, uh, and uh, she she really loves the fifty, and uh, I think and frames uh, one of her favorite painters is also Egon Schiele. Uh, and so on. So there is a, a pictorial tradition in the framing. Her father was an architect uh, of the Bauhaus. So even the, the way she chooses the buildings and the framing is very architectural. And she tells me story as a kid that the father used to bring her to museums to look at paintings, to look at buildings, and, and, and so on. So... Uh, there is a culture uh, behind the shots she chooses, uh, especially in the what I call uh, the German trilogy, because Nietzsche is one of uh, her favorite uh, philosophers as well, rebel, and uh, then the Berlin Affair, where she returns uh, to this time in Berlin uh, to the same historical. Uh, period adapting uh, a Japanese novel. So in a way, it's a journey that uh, has brought her to reflect. And they are, they are very much embedded on the, her documentary years, on the experience she had in uh, the documentary. There was also, that for most filmmakers of that period uh, in Italy, Beginning with documentaries uh, was one way, and uh, documentaries also uh, will teach you not only to be ready for anything, but also to document yourself very well, because you don't do a documentary just by going out and shooting news. (laughs) In order for you to do a documentary, you need to have 
a very good preparation. And then you, you, you select what you want to choose in your documentary. So that is also very important because in the documentary, she, she filmed photographically as a feature, not a, as a documentary, even camera-wise. She approached them uh, as a feature film. You talked a little bit how you really kind of struggled to get tenure. And before we even started to record, you talked about how Cavani was one of the first women to ever graduate from film school that she went to. What was that like for her? Uh, and why were there so few women filmmakers at that time? Only two that had reached worldwide attention is Lina Vermeuler. And Liliana Cavani, Vermeuler came from a different family background. She she was Roman educated, and she she happened to, to begin working with Fellini because at her high school she she was a friend of the of the wife of Mastroianni, so she got recommended after being in theater, in puppet theater. So Vermeuler's career evolved in an easier way, because Fellini embraced her, and from Fellini, of course, she learned the tools of, of the art. Cavani had to learn step by step, because uh, she, she had founded a cine club in her hometown, in Carpi, but when she arrived at, uh, at the film school, yes, you learn, yes, she made uh, some documentaries, she applied to a position with the right television, but then she chose not to be a full-time employee, but to be what we would say today, a freelancer. And it was Angelo Guglielmi, at the time, one of the literary and cultural figures most prominent, who was in charge of, of the cultural programming that somehow began asking her to do the documentaries. And then, and then he asked her to do the first feature film, Francesco di Assisi, which was produced by, by the Rai and then released as a feature film. And so in a way, her career was built step by step. And I think you, you have in life people that somehow change the course of your life. And there are really people who believe in you at a certain moment. They're not necessarily the people you know close to you. And these steps develop and form you. But that's how she began. And uh, with the first Francis of Assisi, she, she had cast uh, Lucas Tell, who at the time had just been in Marco Bellocchio's film and so was considered uh, this kind of very irreverent uh, actor and so on. So to cast for the saint patron of Italy, a controversial actor was already. And, uh, and so, uh, of course, uh, the, the Catholic uh, part uh, some critics resented the fact that she dropped the word saint, that it was not that saintly, that he was not talking to the birds and the rabbits, <laughs> which is what we were told as a kid, going 
to cut the kid. You remember St. Francis, he meets the wolf, he meets the birds, he talks. You know, you remember more of these parts as a kid, you grow up with the image of Francis. The animal, she, she focused on his great departure from the structure of the Middle Ages where a wealthy kid with the future of being a knight chooses to divest himself of all the goods and share the life of the poor. And people believe in him and follow him. And after this, of course, she moved to Galileo, another figure. Galileo was not really the church only officially recognized that they made a, a mistake in having Galileo to endure only almost close to the new millennium. And uh, these films, uh, you know, Francis, the Pope passed to see them. And she, uh, the film with Mickey Rourke, of course, Mickey Rourke was uh, out of uh, the year of the dragon and so on. And when she said Mickey Rourke, and said Mickey Rourke, uh, you know, was uh, that uh, they are close friends. And uh, he, he really, she tell, uh, you know, I, I met her at the time of, uh, she was beginning filming, but I, I always chose not to go on the set, not to be influenced. And uh, I heard all the stories where he actually was leaving the park completely. Once uh, he arrived in Umbria, they were there isolated. He really leave the park. And they are close friends uh, to, to these days. Uh, and uh, so, in a way, uh, I think uh, they're all controversial films for for different reasons. For different reasons, uh, yeah. And it has been said that uh, uh, with the new millennium, I think from uh, the late eighties onward, uh, with uh, the old grand producers who used to take risks. They passed away, they disappeared, that Cavani uh, uh, has not been able to make a film for many years. Uh, the same happened to Francesco Rossi. The same happened to Ettore Scola, who decided not to make any, any Fellini. To, so, in a way, the new trend uh, became uh, either you can make money globally. or And it's very sad. It's very sad. Because uh, going to Rome, I've sensed this change in the atmosphere. And at times you take a risk, and with a little budget, they create uh, a film that stays in the history of cinema. It's not always about money. It's not always about money. Because when you have a team that believes in the project, they forget over time, they forget this, they forget that. They they fall, the filmmaker and the... And that was the generation um, in Europe that created the new wave, uh, Italian neorealism, the 60s revival. Very few work that way with that freedom these days. You can count very few filmmakers in Italy who who can do that kind of uh, filming. Well, before you had a pool, now you, you probably may choose two or three. I don't want to make names, 
but before you you had this lively atmosphere. Uh, uh, so in a way that, but uh, it is true when you talk to Cavani and say, you know, Fellini is usually la dolce vita for some becomes eight and a half. Rossellini is open city. Uh, so each of them, Cavani is the night porter and so on. But uh, actually it's the whole spanning of a career that in a way, but I'm glad that in a way we are discussing this film at the time of Blu-ray, which has restored the, the print because the, the care of, of the color, the lighting. Cavani is about lighting, lighting, the lighting. So it's so important and we owe it a lot to the Bologna, but also Martin Scorsese, Giuseppe Tornatore, and all the artists uh, that are trying to to restore films uh, so that new generations uh, can appreciate it the way it was when it came out. When it came out, Cavani was uh, came to Princeton a couple of times. Every time when we show the night porter, there is somebody in the audience uh, that manifests uh, her descent or his descent. And she is always extremely understanding in, in replying what, what was her intention. And uh, that she didn't see it that way, but she understands. So she had never attacked anybody that at times uh, say uh, your film was uh, a scandal. It would never happen. It would never happen that way, that way. What are you working on these days? Well, I am in a transition between, uh, I won't say any names who is going to be my next filmmaker to work on, but um, I'm taking a transition going back to theater and um, I'm working right now. I'm I'm actually on leave this semester on uh, the most revered Italian theater actress, Eleonora Duse. And I'm working on uh, her for America uh, tournees. She came to America four times. She died in Pittsburgh after one performance. She got pneumonia. There is so much scholarship on her that uh, I found that her American tours were mostly reconstructed through several sources. And I've been working on it for quite a while. And um, I have collected all of the newspaper's reviews for each performance from coast to coast for the episodes, uh, the the performance reviews, the company, uh, the audience, uh, and so on, because uh, she is considered the actress who broke uh, the old way of performing on stage. Basically, she began modern acting, like going on stage uh, with no makeup, uh, going on stage eliminating the the body language, which was so statuesque uh, for the old theater. So uh, she is considered the the greatest theater actress, uh, superior to Sarah Bernard, who was her competitor at the time. And they would find in New York together in theaters goes by. 
I thought um, in a way it was uh, a journey I'm taking and that's very interesting, the episode, because she would not release interviews. Uh, she would not meet the journalists. Uh, and that, that kind of seclusion was quite um, odd for the times. Uh, there is another personal element that I grew up uh, in Vigevano, in Lombardy, and she was born in Vigevano. And as a kid, uh, I used to walk, uh, and there was this plaque in front of this old tavern that said here the great Eleonora Duse was born because she came from a family of traveling actors. And while they were passing through, she was born accidentally in Vigevano. Vigevano. But uh, the city always honored that accidental birth, uh, that her family, they were traveling actors. Uh, and uh, that she was put on stage when she was four years old. That's what I'm working, and then I'll go back to cinema. But I like to take uh, these long journeys. My work is mostly based on uh, archival materials uh, and so on in, uh, in making the book, uh, not just a book, hopefully, hopefully. And I've been privileged that they've been well received. Gitana, thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for your book on Liana Cavani, as well as all of your other books. They are fantastic. Well, uh, no, but thank you so much. And let's stay in touch. And when Liliana is here, uh, if you would like anything from her, she will be mostly on this coast. She will not be traveling uh, to the Midwest. But if there is anything, she's always very excited when there is interest, in, there is some interest in her and her life, uh, because uh, that's the only life uh, she had, uh, cinema, cinema, cinema. But thank you so much for asking me. back and we're talking about the night porter and we've brought up a whole lot of other films that really play very well with this film i know we've talked about seven beauties on this show before we just talked about the conformist last week you guys mentioned the damned did anybody get a chance to see ikanabali the previous cavani film because that one was lost or very tough to see for years for my sins i have not seen any of her other films and i feel bad about that because i love the night porter i do as well i'm the same yeah, as you I don't know why. maybe it's because think. it's so perfect i feel like i don't know what there is there's this i want to see her other films but then there's a kind of intrepidation for seeing the other films that they won't it's part of a wider trilogy but i i don't know i've been on the cusp sometimes and then just not i don't know to mention Wurtmuller, though, it's interesting that both of those worked in that same theme of collaboration. And we did Seven Beauties, didn't we? Which is a whole other, total different type of uh, sex and collaboration than in a whole different. But it's interesting that both women and they both, I know not just women were choosing these subjects. It was like 
the big thing for the art house crowd at the time. Even Bob Fosse made Cabaret, which I think is the best musical ever made. And, you know, it just seemed to be this thing that suddenly a door opened and everyone was like, okay, let's explore this. Uh, and you had the sort of Italian filmmakers, but interesting that the two women who were in perhaps precarious positions in the industry, so they didn't have the same power, they both chose that as a subject, both of them. Um, well, and it's interesting too, the way that one is the woman in power and the man who's the servant and the other one it's flipped. Yeah, they are like sort of two sides of the same coin, although the work Mueller is dark comedy. But Wurtmuller was obsessed with this idea of power and things like swept away in that, like this weird violent relationship that happens on a desert island. Yeah, it's interesting that that's what women were looking at in cinema. And I, I do, I do need to see her other films. I've, you know, it's just that, that whole thing. Is anything ever going to be as good as The Night Baller? I don't know. You Are the Cannibals is very different. And I only bring it up because I've watched it for the show and I loved it. I had been tracking that movie down for a long time, and then it came out at a beautiful, restored DVD that I can't remember if that was Raro put out. And yeah, I just had it sitting on the shelf. I'm just like, okay, the, the quest is over. So then I finally sat down and watched it the other night. I was blown away. I really, very minimal dialogue. Pierre Clementi walking through that one kind of he feels like jesus a little bit to me for some reason though it's really based on the antigone story so it's it's great it is really a lot of fun there's and we talked about seeds of man a couple of years ago right before the pandemic or right as the pandemic was starting this one also has this whole epidemic that's going on where there are dead bodies in the streets and kind of playing it with the antigone thing it's you're not allowed to touch the dead bodies and the main female character wants to take her brother and give him a proper burial and the authorities just latch onto that and they will pursue them and want to murder them for touching this dead body. And there are dead bodies lined all along the streets to the point where at one point, like a character's walking and steps on a dead person's hand. And it's even when you meet Clementi the first time, he's looks like he's dead on a beach and all these kids are trying to like poke him with a stick to wake him up and just see if he's really dead or not. Great, great imagery, and I mean, I love Pierre Clementi. I'll watch him in anything. He's great, isn't he? He's he's in the weirdest of stuff as well. It felt a little Hodorowski to me at times, to the point where I was like, have Hodorowski and Clementi ever worked together? Because he reminded me of the main character from The Holy Mountain. Especially that scene where he's, he's crawling or like kind of stalking the, the Hodorowski priest character walking through that hallway with all the colors. It just something about the way that that actor was moving reminded me of how Clementi is in this film. And yeah, really nothing to do with the night porter. Like I can see some of the themes, but really. Yeah, but you've got to make some, some room for Pierre because he's just incredible and was in The Conformist as well. So it's kind of connected. Uh, the Conformist is another one about sort of collaboration, isn't it? And power. And uh, it was like there was something in the water around that time in Italy that they suddenly, the Czechs did it a bit earlier on. Once the dialogue starts, you know, people people kind of reticent to talk about something and then it's like enough time has passed. Now we can start, we can start addressing this, you know. 
Professor Moroni brought up something very interesting. I didn't know that there were these trials going on in the Auschwitz trials in Vienna in 1972, which really kind of speaks to why the night porters being set in Vienna and the film is being made in 1974. So it feels like it's very much a response to that. We don't need to be put on trial because we're policing ourselves. We're the good Nazis as these, this little conclave of four or five Nazis that are just so above it all. It's a witch hunt. It's a sham. It's a hoax. Yeah. And it's like, Philippe, you're not, you know, you might have that monocle, but you're just nuts, mate. I know we talked about him in Feminine Readings. Philippe Leroy was one of those people. He'd be in like real sort of, not mainstream, but he was in like Castle of the Living Dead and more sort of, you know. And then he'd just be in these really out there art house weird films. He was one of those characters, you know, it seems completely normal that he would turn up as a big monocled Nazi because, you know, he, he's another one who didn't care about, you know, he'd just take these really interesting roles, even though he started off as a kind of good-looking cinema boy. He'd often play these roles that were quite unpleasant, and he's certainly very unpleasant in feminine readings, which we discussed. Uh, so, and he's great. I think they also bring in this weird aspect of almost camp to it as well, because they've got the whole and the Nazi era Germans. They love camp, didn't they? They love burlesque. They love camp, and they're still living in this like dead world, this gone world where they're all very grandiose and, you know, they still watch Bert dance. And it's like, it is really strange. It's a really strange universe that they've created amongst themselves. It's like you could do a whole movie about just artworks within the Nazi community. Cause I'm trying to think like the pianist, there was, Oh God. Well, there was the boxing one with Wilm Defoe. It's like they had like their own little world of, art and culture within the Nazi Yeah, they were camps. obsessed with it. They were obsessed with it, weren't they? And they stole a lot of culture and they stole a lot of art. You know, they came along and put an end to the Weimar era, which was just such an incredible era for so many reasons, mainly for creativity and expression. And they come along and they're like, this is wrong, you know, this is bad. And they, they then they take all the best bits of that and steal it away and hide it away. You always have uh, in Vice and Virtue the the kind of German brothels. They've got all this like stolen artwork and all the antiques that they stole. And they sort of did see themselves as these sort of connoisseurs, didn't they? But at the same time, denying anybody any credit for the fact, you know, the Nazis didn't make any of it. They just destroyed everything. They didn't. That was like a. The, remember the train, the Frankenheimer film with uh, Bert Lancaster, and that was about the stealing of the works or the French trying to get their works back. But there was uh, the German soldier who I think was was that Lancaster. I'm trying to remember which way it, which way it went, but that was uh, like this. The Germans were taking. He had this really strong art appreciation. He was like, "You want it back because it's yours, but I really appreciate it." You know, <laughs> it's, it's like great line at the end. It was just fantastic. But um, yeah, they and well, they, they were huge colonizers, weren't they? They were. They just stole and colonized everything, and they loved filming. You know, they filmed. They filmed everything. I did want to mention Lenny Riefenstahl uh, in, in this. You know, that whole thing of the 
You know, it just went around. I'm going to be friends with Hitler as long as I can film fit men in these like really homoerotic montages. More about me wanting to look at these boys. And then they lift that up as like the pinnacle of Germany. And you're just like, this is like the gayest thing I've ever seen. It's incredible. All these naked, had semi-naked muscular men. You know, there is that aspect to it, that sort of Lenny Riefenstahl aspect to it in the character, the way they all watch Bert and sort of, you know, sit around watching. It's just like, what the the fuck is this so perverse in the best way? There is that thing, though, that the like the Nazi uniforms and the whole kind of aesthetic of that, it does have this perversity. I think that's why Vadim chose it for Vice and Virtue. You know, their whole obsession with aesthetics and art, you know, it was very ornate sort of style. And so it does apply itself very well to erotica and erotic. You know, if you want to go taboo as well, to give it that extra forbidden element. Not that the night court is straight out erotica, it's not. But it does have elements of a, like more literary erotica, that whole idea that it's more about um, mood and the tease rather than like flat out sex. So there are jet, like Emma said, the dance is flat out one of the most erotic moments in all of the cinema. And she is dressed in a Nazi uniform and a Nazi hat. And interesting, she chooses Marlena because Marlena was the one who betrayed them, wasn't she? She went off to help the US and was like, F you, I will never come back. And you know, they have to. Isa Miranda playing the Countess, who's so Marlena Dietrich-like, you know, she's like that, you know, she's that Italian Dietrich and she just has that that look about her, you know, fantastic. There's one thing that I did want to say because I noticed something in your your notes, Mike, about that hair in the gate scene. Oh, my God, that was driving me nuts. So I read something about that or I heard Cavani talking about it. Oh, I read it. I can't remember. Anyway, because the, the Criterion re-release, right, still has that hair in the gate of that. And you can tell what it's a certain shot it's cut into, but it's the basically it's their first true confrontation when they see each other for, you know, they're reunited for the first time. With that scene, I think they only did one take. So that's why that's their their hair is in the gate because Cavani doesn't do a lot of takes. She she confesses to not she's not a Kubrick, let's say. But um, she didn't have much money on this, so did she? So even in no, I think she film, I think she ran out. Stock, yeah, they ran out like just towards the end of the production. So you know they couldn't. Not everyone had the had the freedom of Kubrick to just throw away <laughs> miles <laughs> of film. <laughs> But she decided that, I mean, they could have, you know, digitally removed it. And she said that if people notice it, and there's a reason why I think you noticed it, Mike, but if people notice it, it's that they're not in the scene. So she kind of used it, I think, as a little test. And But the thing is, I don't think I did notice it the first time I watched it. I didn't. I'm, I'm just like, what? Fucking hair! I'm sat here confused, yes. <laughs> and, and then I'm vindicated. <laughs> there you go. I've seen see? that film so many times. I'm just like, what? Sorry. I'll just like listen to what you're saying, see if it rings a bell. And I'm like, no. Uh, well, I only picked it up 
in subsequent viewings. So I knew, and that's, uh, and then, you know, I heard that explanation of it. But, you know, in terms of that, their meeting, and that's what we could call the first sex scene, I guess, apart from the weird flashbacks, that happens only halfway through. That is at the halfway through point of the film. So it takes a long time to get to there. And then, you know, obviously, like, you know, as I'm saying before, that idea of a journey, you really get, I mean, they do meet right at the start, but it's only by glances and, you know, and recollections through the flashback that um, that their relationship's being pieced together. So they don't, it takes, takes all that time till halfway through the film. And you kind of have a sense, you know, people talk in the way that's being talked about, like it's horniness and sex right from the start you know it's interesting how people yeah it's interesting how people fill in the gaps like it's like the texas chainsaw sort of syndrome isn't it where you know people would remember texas chainsaws being like much more violent and graphic than this in the night port it's like people like pornography you know it's absolutely filthy and then you're like no it's not like even not even for a european film where you know you're right in the full bush jallo years where, you know, you've got like a borderline sort of softcore sex scene every five minutes and all you see is a bit of quivering ass, a semi-naked thick guy and some boobs. And the rest of it is like, yeah, okay, you remember the, the scene where she sings, but even in that there's no sex. It's all about suggestion. That's when it becomes true erotica rather than porn. If you talk to people, you'll be get um, and spoken to numerous people about this. There's kind of like a little test. Reservoir dogs, reservoir dogs, I should say. There's a suburb in Melbourne that is called is spelt reservoir, but everyone calls it reservoir. So <laughs> it's reservoir dogs to me. That film, where, that scene where they cut off. Michael Madsen's character cuts off his his ear, another guy's ear. Everyone will swear you see him cutting off the ear. When I saw that, because it was delayed release here, and I didn't see it till 94 when I was pregnant, I think my second son, and for some reason they shown or there was like a delay. And all I had heard was about this ear cutting scene, right, from everyone. Oh, my God, there's this cuts off his ear. And I get in there, and I was so fucking angry when I came out of this film. It's like you don't see the ear cut. It it was a black screen. I felt robbed. Yeah, the camera moves over. You don't see it. And I came out feeling betrayed, but that wasn't anything to do with the uh, makers. or That was just people putting that in there. Like, they just imagined it. And that's what you have. You have that with the knife porter. You can see when you really, you know, when you actually watch the film, it's like, huh? Right. People probably are like, oh, she's giving him blowjobs through that whole movie. It's like, no. It's pornography, I tell you. It's like, we can just watch some strange pornography if you think. I guess pornography becomes that word, though, doesn't it? To sort of disparage anything, though, as well. Anything. It's like, oh, it's pornography. It's rubbish. Therefore, it's rubbish, you know, because obviously pornography can't have any artistic integrity. So, bleh, it's just porn. And it's like, shame on you, Pauline Kale, for, for say, yeah. It's also to suggest this idea that, you know, in some way that it's therefore demeaning to women. So, you know, this idea that that's 
sits alongside pornography, and it's not necessarily true. But then simultaneously getting angry at Charlotte Rampling, she would dare to do something different, you know, because it's all so demeaning to women, oh, it's demeaning to women, but actually, no, she's not playing something like that. She's got a lot of agency. How dare you have agency in this role? Like, how dare you? You know, so it's, it, I think as a woman, you're like damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's, it's just, you know, you're never going to win. But her whole sort of, I know she was interviewed for cult films when they re-restored it. And she's just so kind of like chill about the role. It's great. She's just like really bemused by it all. She shouldn't give a fuck. She's like... <laughs> Oh, well. I don't think she has to prove herself. I think that, you know, I think she's had a career too, amazing career since this film that's like, you know, whatever. But like you said, she was really young when she did that film and that took some fucking balls to do. Mm. That took And I think a young mother as well. I think she'd had a baby by then and, uh, you know, it's full on. Yeah, she'd only just had a kid when she did the film didn't she yeah so she and she but she did it and didn't and even at the time had no regrets which is wonderful because i think a lot of actresses can often get bullied out of taking the more sort of daring route you know by popular opinion and she was absolutely not gonna take that at all all right, let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. Now, I understand it ain't anybody perfect on this green earth. Not preachers. Look here, I know preacher. And you can tell folks better how terrible sin is if you know from your own experience. <laughs> In a world of sin and seduction, there's a lot of ways of getting saved. My name is Oni J. Holy. Some do it with style. And I am a preacher. I don't, I don't mind you doing that. I'm going to the city. Some have other plans. I'm going to do some things I ain't never done before. I started my own church. Church of truth without Christ. Protestant? There's something fun. Oh, no, ma'am, it's Protestant. What Hazel Motes wants is a good car and a fast woman. Do you think I should neck or not? I shall not enter the kingdom of heaven anyway, so I don't see what difference it makes. What he gets is the last thing he wanted. He was once as tall as you or me. Some Arabs done it to him in six months. Where you come from is gone. Where you thought you were going to, weren't never there. And where you are ain't no good unless you can get away from it. Hi, Ganga. I'm only 18 years old, but I already work at the city zoo. You idiot, get off. Wise Plus. The New York Times calls it an uproarious tale. One of John Huston's most original, most stunning movies. I can save you. I've got a church in my heart where Jesus is king. Nobody with a good car needs to be justified. Wise Blood. Some got it. Some preachers left his mark on you. It's not too much to know the truth, just one dollar. Some sell it. Where are you going? There must be at least ten dollars out there. And some give it away. That's okay, son. Mom don't mind if you ain't no preacher, as long as you got four dollars. A new film by John Huston. Wise Blood, from the acclaimed novel by Flannery O'Connor, starring Brad Dourif with Ned Beatty, Harry Dean Stanton, and Amy Wright. Wise Blood, directed by John Huston, from New Line Cinema. This car is just beginning its life. A lightning bolt couldn't stop it. 
That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at John Houston's wise blood. Until then, I want to thank my co-host, Emma and Kat. So, Kat, what is keeping you busy, man? Oh, wow. I think I mentioned on one of the previous episodes, I, I've been moving more into production rather than contributing to the video. They let me have the keys to Bluebeard's Castle. So I all last year I was working on this quite big project, which I co-produced with Michael McKenzie for Arrow called Gothic Fantastico, which has just been announced. And I got to curate the titles, which was like, you know, <laughs> Somebody was like, oh, you know, what Italian gothic would you like to see? And I got to curate a lot of the extras and I'm really, really proud of it. And it's been a, like, took a whole year in the, in the making. So we got like the witch, the Blancheville monster, Lady Morgan's vengeance and the third eye with a very young Franco Nero as a necrophile. Cause that's what happens when you give me the keys. So. That's a pre-order now, and I just urge everyone to get it. Because it's, it's all a few of the Italian Gothics that really don't get the love. That And seeing the restorations, I know like Lady Morgan's Vengeance, to me, is a really interesting film. So it's very female-centric, uh, and the revenge angle is very unique. And I actually did a video essay on there arguing it was more akin to Asian horror at the time because it was more about the grudge spirit and the love spirit rather than the more traditional gothic horror. But I've only ever seen that in like this very degraded, crappy print. And when I saw the restoration for it, I was just like, oh, my God. You know, this is why we need film restoration. I think a lot of people are going to change their minds on this film that have seen it in that sort because it doesn't look very spectacular. I'll give it that. But when you see it restored, you're like, oh, my God, this film is beautiful. And all of the films, I'm especially excited about The Witch, which is a film, Strega and Amore, which I've obsessed over for years. So, yeah, pre-order the set. You won't be disappointed. And there's so many good people on there. It's just it's just lovely. And Emma, how about yourself? I'm hatching a book at the moment. So it's due to come out in October this year, end of October, and it's um, Bride of Frankenstein, but it's something that um, I've kind of edited and curated different authors writing writing about different themes and subjects around the, the Bride of Frankenstein, this beautiful film that's 85, 86 years old now. So it's amazing to be able to to have that resonate with these writers in some really interesting ways. Good feedback from the publisher so far. So, you know, it's it's looking good. And that's the main thing, apart from doing bits and bobs for different releases at the moment. I've got oh, Arrow have announced a couple of releases that I'm on. So Videodrome, a new release for 4K restoration for the David Cronenberg video, Videodrome, where I've done a critical roundtable with a couple, few great people and uh, Take Back the Night, which is a great little monster film. Have you seen that, Kat? No, and I'm interested to see it, especially because all you guys are associated with the release. So, you know, I know I'm in good company. I've got to check it out. It's a ripper. It's a ripper little horror film little independent U.S. horror film made by uh, Gia Elliott and I think it's Emma Fitzpatrick. I hope that's her name. I'm pretty sure that's her name. She's Anyway, they co-wrote it together and Gia directed it and Emma stars in it and it's really something special. 
I think it's a it's a great little film. So doing that and tomorrow I've got to do a on stage Q and A with Emma Thompson. So wish yeah, me I luck. know. <laughs> just that, just that as well. Like it's <laughs> you superstar, honestly. <laughs> I'm scared. Oh, she seems really lovely. She but, seems you know. like the loveliest person. She does. She does. And so, remains you know. of the day talking of romance. He's the most romantic film ever made. Oh, it is so is. And that's a long time ago now, Kat. And we could have brought that up because that's another one that talks about Nazi collaboration. We could have <gasps> brought that up. Oh, of course. Oh, my God. Oh, and well, it's right, at the, British it's right at the end. <laughs> oh, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, ladies, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of my other shows that I do, like The Shabby Detective, Dreams for Sale, The Life and Times of Captain Barney Miller, and Rankin on Bass. They are all available where finer podcasts can be found. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
See you.